insert at the end of my days from trouble from the record trouble from 1990 produced by the uh fantastic mr mr rick rubin this is the record metal podcast i'm mark and i'm jason and uh yeah this is the forgotten gem the forgotten masterpiece the long out of print pain in the ass to try to track down an actual physical copy of album for sure yeah and this is uh the legend of this record for me goes back probably uh three or four years where i started reading things about it um you know on occasion you just i don't know i i would just like search around amazon and just kind of see what uh what link to what you know in terms mm-hmm. of recommendations and this record kept coming up but then i'd see that it was on amazon it would be like 35 dollars i'm like for cd and of course the covers like you know just dude standing in front of like a graveyard kind of thing you know i mean yeah. it's like not much happening guys with bangs yeah and of course you know some of you i'm sure in the metal world are, are very familiar with trouble and their reputation as being sort of one of the innovators of the american doom metal kind of sound post black sabbath you know mm-hmm. in the early 80s 1984 yeah along with like vitus and pentagram yeah, yeah yeah you know i mean they're sort of one of these uh innovative you know bands hailing out of chicago and I had never heard of this record. I knew uh, Grindcore Coon, who's been on the show a few times, uh, had Manic Frustration, which was on Deaf American Records and was released a couple of years later in 1992. Mm-hmm. But no one I knew had this record. And then, you know, the the ratings for it were just like kind of off the charts. And people were, you know, I remember reading reviews. I have a single for this, actually. Do you really? For, I, I think for, I don't know if it's for Manic, manic uh, Frustration or not, but I remember at the radio station, it was one of those things that was going to oh, be pitched. Wow. Because I I remember having that cover someplace. I'll, hey. have, to, I'll have to check my. Uh, yeah, you could have you could be sitting on a gold mine, my friend. Just put that thing on eBay. Yeah, I think I might. Um, but you know, so I I would read reviews where they're like, you know, best album of the '90s, you know, best album from 1990 to 1996, you know, one of the best yeah. records, and I'm like what the hell are people talking about? Like, I've never even heard of this record, you know, trouble, trouble, you know? And then I read all oh, Rick Rubin produced it. Like, oh, that's kind of interesting, you know, mm-hmm. cause obviously for those of you unfamiliar, you know, Rubin gains his reputation through hip hop with public enemy and beastie boys and run DMC, but then moves on with, you know, Slayer, Johnny cash in recent times, mm-hmm. hours, hours, um, you know, red hot chili peppers, blood sugar, sex, magic, you know, the cult electric, you know, I mean, yeah. great, rock and roll records the first few danzigs you know yeah. i mean you know so i i think, he had an ear for yeah uh, kind of a predictive ear really when exactly it comes down to and it. sometimes he was like way ahead of the curve unfortunately and mm-hmm. i think this is a this is a total missed opportunity by this band and, and it's no fault of their own i think they put their heart and soul into this record and really absolutely sort of threw something down but you got to remember if you if you can kind of go back to 1990 those of you who are as uh old as mark and i uh you know 1990 is um metallica black record well even before that though this is uh poison nothing but a good time this is alternative stuff starting to creep in i I wouldn't even say that yet i mean we're still a year and a half away from nirvana you know this is really a weird time this is a there's some sound gardens ish stuff but it wasn't creeping into mtv very no no not at all and i think this is a record that should have been there you know in a way mm-hmm. like a song like at the end of the days is so freaking catchy as i'm sure you just heard you know the wolf psychotic reaction um well the misery show ended up the the kind of ballad of the record showed up on on headbangers ball i remember seeing that several times but but i think it was like 
you know. But it seemed like one because you know lost when you're in a vacuum of yeah when you're shit, throwing like you know? you know death metal-y stuff along with that that song kind of comes ra- comes across as kind of you know pussyish and like why is this exactly on there? And I think you know it's it's caught in the midst of hair metal on one in one regard. It's not as fast to sort of pick up on the trend of like what the momentum of records like Injustice for All and Rust in Peace were sort of creating, you know, even though it's actually released at the same time as Rust in Peace 1990. Mm-hmm. But like that kind of thrash momentum, it's, well, it's not Well, then was, was starting at this point too. Well, you've got, all the yeah, you've got the rise of uh, the earache kind Swedish of Swedish death metal, you know, under, you know, the rumblings of the underground so, there too. So where do these guys go? You know what I mean? Like they're like Caius. There's they're no fucked. scene. There's no scene for him. <laughs> you know, uh, Cathedral Force of Equilibrium is a year later, right? Ninety-one. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so it's like this is such a strange record uh, in that there's no there's no COC blind yet or COC deliverance. There's no clutch. There's no Caius yet. Mm-hmm. Loose for the Red Sun has not come out yet. So I mean, it's weird. You know, it's just a strange record, and like, there's moments on it. If like, it would have been a year later, I think it would have been a completely different story. Yeah, because you would have had a foundational aspect of uh, certain records, like Alice in Chains' facelift, which which was this was very predictive of that in a mm-hmm. way. You know, but yet it's it's sort of trapped in one way between like its roots in like early '80s doom, like Vitus, like early Trouble. You know, it's got this like almost prescient quality of predicting what like sort of the grunge sound mm-hmm. was going to be at least the heavier end of the grunge scene and some of the psychedelic stuff you know i mean you picked up on you know porcupine tree you know more progressive sort of like songwriting yeah, elements Pink Floyd, you definitely like hear later on cathedral stuff just you know oh and then and it. then just cathedral all over you know at the end of yeah. my days is is cathedral to a t you know yeah. i mean if gaz wasn't listening to this stuff like you know uh, he was I'd, I'd be positive <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and I mean, anybody that was in the doom metal genre, which really didn't exist as much of a scene in 1990, certainly was in. There's always trouble, these, yeah, there's know? these little, like, you know, bands like, you know, Witchfinder General and, you know, like later on The Obsessed and things like that, that were just always kind of anomalies. But I think the underground kind of like, you yeah. know, spurned them on to let them, you know, kind of like exist as their own little thing. But the kind of, you know, something on Deaf American, something like this kind of, uh, I guess. You know, it was this out there, you know, yeah. it was like everybody, you know, this kind of a wide stream or wide um, acceptance of a record. And uh, it, I mean, the cover doesn't really say much about it. If you no. see it at a record store, it's a bunch of guys. It, it looks bangs. like something that you would have seen in 1968 or 69. Yeah, totally. You know, I mean, it looks like a, <laughs> looks like a, you know, late 60s psych record, you know, yeah. which is cool. I mean, that's almost what they're going for. In some aspect of the musicality of it, but it's like, but in, yeah, in 1990, where you know Guns and Roses was still, you know, Appetite, and what what else came out? After well, that? Use Your Illusion is a year away still. Okay, it's not. But at this time, I mean, Appetite was still well oh, on the radio and, everywhere. And lies or uh, not lies. Uh, the song with patience and um, yeah. Well, I can't. Why am I drawing a blank? Well, even yeah, like Doctor Feelgood and yeah, stuff was like is. huge at this point. You know, sure. the Bob Rock sound, all that this kind of crap do- was yeah. happening. So yep. definitely, this is a Doctor Feelgood era. <laughs> and if, if and the layman heard this, they'd be like, "Wow, this kind of you know reminds me a little bit of Cinderella." But what's with that heavy riffing? <laughs> yeah, I mean Tom Keeper, you know, vocally, you know, I mean there's there's this like weird '80s hair metal vibe that exists throughout part of it. Mm-hmm. But I think that's just like. You know, and I mean, 80s hair metal, we could slag it left and right, but there's there's moments of, like, great songwriting brilliance from, like, a rat or a Dokken on occasion or whatever, because ultimately the roots of it are rock and roll, and there's mm-hmm. great moments 
of, you know, just like Aerosmith has great moments of rock and roll, you know, whereas a lot of it sounds really tired and cliche, but yeah, everything in the yeah, 80s and 90s, you know, but like, <laughs> but, but like every so often they sort of like grab that, that moment, you know, mm-hmm. and so Cinderella had their moments, you know, like, uh, nobody, uh, nobody's right. fool. Like for instance, yeah. I'll, I'll stand behind that song. Like it's got like a, a quality to it. And I think they were just, they were writing songs like that. And I think Rick Rubin pushes bands to do stuff like that. I mean, he pushed Danzig to try and be like... Like Roy Orbison? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and to do but stuff. But Satanic? Yeah. <laughs> Satanic yeah. Roy Orbison. You know, he pushed The Cult to try and write an ACDC record with Electric. I mean, mm-hmm. The Cult were coming out of, like, doing this... Um, Did he do Sonic Temple as well? No, but I think Sonic Temple was informed by what they learned by doing Electric. But okay. if you listen to Electric, it's almost like straight three-chord ACDC kind of record, you mm-hmm. know, with, like... Um, uh, oh my gosh why am I drawing a blank on the cult um, anyways I'm not going to waste your time trying well, to remember the song what's that? oh I thought you were trying to think of yeah no I was trying to think of some of the songs like uh, off of that uh, Love Love Removal Machine mm-hmm. is like the, the standard song off of, of Electric or whatever it was, yeah, it was like missing, mixing ACDC and like, uh, you know, the, the UK goth scene. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, like the She Sells Sanctuary stuff from 85 was so different when Electric came out in 87. People were like, what? <laughs> like, yeah. You know, yeah, this is no longer English, like new, you know, new wave, gothy kind of dark rock stuff. Um, and, and so I think ruben always sees these opportunities for redemption for bands you know mm-hmm. i mean he's he's good at doing that well like yeah to, to like strip them down to the essence of what they are what what made them great and then make that great record that they haven't done yet and you just hope that it falls in the right moment you know like we talked about uh, a record like ours which you know um what was the name of that record it was on our best day, best uh best of in 2008 or 2009 we played the song Black from it. They had Distorted Lullabies. Then they had... Um... Wow. Yeah. Drawing a blank. Well, anyways, it was their third record uh, yeah. from like 2008, 2009. Precious era. was the second one. Yeah, Precious was their second one. Why am I drawing a blank? It might be Black. I don't know. I don't think uh, it is. But, um, That's something you can find in like cut-out bargain bins that yeah. I would definitely pick up. It's a fantastic and, and record. It, and it sounds great and it didn't get much attention. But you know that was definitely, I guess, for them... It was intended to be like a breakout record, maybe. You know, that's mm-hmm. why they went to Ruben. I mean, Danzig one was like a reinvention of Danzig post Sahane and Misfits. You know, um, and, and that's you know even Death Magnetic in a way was oh, yeah. was intended as kind of a comeback to thrash. You know, Metallica kind of record for for the fans in a, in a sense, but. You know, it just depends on the era. And if you look at what else was coming out in Deaf America in 1990, I mean, Season of the Abyss, Slayer, Fear of a Black Planet, you know, Public Enemy. I mean, it wasn't, <laughs> it didn't fall with anything. It was, yeah, it was strange. it was its own thing, you for know? sure. I mean, I think Danzig 2 came out, what, in 90? This is the same year as Danzig 2, right? Because 88's the debut, so I would imagine two years later, because I think How the so. Gods Kill is 92, yeah, yeah, and Danzig 4 is 94. Mm-hmm. So, I mean... You know, if you go on that that sort of rate, so, and you know, I mean, we could sit here and ponder why this record didn't get popular for for hours, I'm sure, but it, it is what it is, and um, fortunately, we have the opportunity to sort of go back and revisit and look at how it did inform bands like Caius, it did inform bands like Coc, it did inform even James Hetfield to some extent. The riff you hear in Psychotic Reaction, you even pointed out. I mean, that's 
It's more Metallica than Metallica. It's, it's Metallica Black record. Yeah. The Black Elm before the Black Elm was even put out. You know, yeah. with that bottom on yeah. your current, like, Bob Rock kind of Sandman kind of riff, you know, which, hey, say what you want about Metallica Black record, but they, they pulled that riff off really well, you know. Um, it's Alice in Chains in some ways before Alice in Chains was Alice in Chains, mm-hmm. you know. And, and so there's it was, those, yeah, those it was like moments. mashing a lot of genres together that didn't necessarily sound right at the time but ended up becoming like entire movements yeah and that must be frustrating for trouble <laughs> yeah, i bet to, to yeah. sort of look at this over and over again and go god damn it why <laughs> why couldn't this have come out in 92 after like pearl jam soundgarden all those bands that's yeah. you know broken through the the veil of you know pushing psychedelic black sabbath meets punk kind of well, and more moments. just traditional rock stuff back with a little bit. I mean, because Alice in Chains has a lot of like Sunset Strip cock rock in Absolutely. it. Absolutely. A ton of it. Yeah, a lot of And it just came out at the right, you know, it came out at the right time. Yeah. So, you know, it took bands like Cathedral to sort of put it into practice. Mm-hmm. It took bands like Caius, you know, and Clutch and those bands to, to make this sound what it is. And ultimately, I think what this record is, and it was sort of a, a, a light bulb moment, I think, for us as we were talking this is down nola yeah i mean you know it on so many record on so many levels it's five years before down makes the same type of record with their debut nola you know which is you know decibel hall of fame i mean you know pepper keenan from coc guys from crowbar jimmy bauer from i hate god and of course phil ensemble from pantera and Mm -hmm. it's like they had the right components and the right time to sort of make that record and make it popular and legendary and uh, I, I mean, bet if it you was more popular than I could have ever imagined it be. Like when I heard it when it first came out, I was like, eh, who gives a shit? Yeah. And then, you know, look a couple, you know, five, ten years later and, you know, touring again for this thing, and it's fucking huge. But I think it was scratching an itch that people were looking for. Yeah. And unfortunately, Trouble were scratching an itch that wasn't there yet. And they didn't have the cachet of a Phil Anselmo, too, to, you know, rally his, you know, his fan base around something like this. Because I think preceding this, I think you have to understand a couple things. You know, Metal Blade had put out trouble prior to this, and uh, their last record was Run to the Light in 1987. And it was not, it was kind of a commercial failure and even kind of a critical failure, too. They had come off... um, the debut trouble which originally was titled trouble trouble but then later becomes known as solemn nine because mm-hmm. of this record the self-titled year. yeah and then they put out the skull and i think 85 or 86 and then run to the late in 87 and i think people just thought trouble was done because trouble just disappeared and mm-hmm. then three years later they show up with this kind of rock and roll record on like another label rick rubin i mean i don't know I mean, for all intents and purposes at the time i mean a major yeah, on some yeah. level. Yeah, on some level. Coming off a of metal blade for sure. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean, I mean as far as just the exposure, the distribution, the um, I think the amount of like uh, critics that had got their hands on this thing, and just you know the you know because at that point, you know, Rick Rubin had a hell of a lot of pull with people as well. Mm-hmm. So you know, he was kind of a tastemaker, but obviously, a lot of the times it didn't sure. necessarily work. Sure. Well. I guess what our hope is is that maybe if you haven't heard this record much before or haven't really given it a chance that you'll you'll probably come away as blown away as as we were the first time we we heard this because this is a record I think you can put on I've put this on around total non metal fans who have been like awesome mm-hmm. you know I mean like they yeah. hear a song like we're gonna hear next the wolf and I mean the chorus just just you know works so well you know I mean it, it, it's a song that sounds kind of important. Like it sounds like it's some, about something important or mm-hmm. something like epic, and where it really isn't. When you break down the lyrics, it's kind of a silly song. But uh, 
I think for me, it's my favorite song because like when I hear it, it makes me feel like good. You know, like yeah. it makes me like want to drive around a car and just kind of like be, you know, uh, is it because of, it's white metal? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And that's the other thing. That's the other kind of reputation thing that followed trouble around. And they certainly don't shake it with this record, you know, with songs like heaven on my mind and, uh, all is forgiven and, and things. But like I mean, that. it was basically a crass marketing move by metal blade at the time because black metal stuff was starting to, you know, gain popularity. Things like, you know, venom would, would were getting that kind of tag and yeah. Bathory and, and all that. And then, why not call it white metal? Because, you know, sometimes they, they have Bible inspired stuff. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and Wagner, Eric Wagner, the lead vocalist will say, you know, like he just wasn't really into like singing about Satan stuff. So Mm -hmm. sometimes like personal things of his life and personal struggles he had, and, and he was raised Catholic, and so he brought some of that in, but he never intended it to be like a preachy kind of movement or anything. It never like comes that. across that way either, yeah. you know, because that's the weird thing about a lot of Doom stuff. Same like Vitus, everybody's got crucifixes on and stuff too. But I think it's all comes from you know Iomi wearing yeah. you know the, the huge crucifix. Well, and so much about Iomi and why Sabbath did it originally, and I mean, you go to a song like After Forever and Masters of Reality, which is like as white metal as it gets you know it's kind yeah of, you know i mean i think sabbath if anything we're very catholic you know much mm-hmm. in the same way like you and i have chatted like about you know shows we obsess of like angel you know like in, in this show that's very catholic it's about atonement and things like that and mm-hmm. i think a lot of sabbath songs are about atonement really it's not so much satan satan it's more like satan's coming around the bend yeah. Like, you know, it's it's very similar to like what blues artists wrote about, you know, mm-hmm. Hound on My Trail, Robert Johnson, where yeah. Devil's Coming, you know, because you've fucking lived a sinful life. Every pentagram did. song. Yeah, exactly. I mean and and so I don't know. I think I think I don't think trouble was that far out of that realm in yeah, some I, ways. They're they well. sort of dealing with that. So but um uh, real quick, just uh, we mentioned Eric Wagner. We should mention the sort of guitar duo on this record that just do some fantastic harmonies and all kinds of awesome fucking solos and everything uh, uh bruce franklin mm-hmm. and uh rick wartell rick wartell and yeah. then also on bass we had ian brown oh no this is that's old i think i've uh, got some i've got a bunch of conflicting oh do you things here i think well maybe. i'll find out i'll find out something holster on bass well maybe. barry stern was barry stern the, the drummer May he rest in peace yes and he uh just like it, it's ron holtz holtzner okay ron the bass player okay yeah but yeah, Barry Stern passed away in 2005, and it, some of the the drumming on this is, I mean, again, Bill Ward esque, you know, in terms yeah. of just like the the groove that he's able to sort of lock down, you know. I mean, you heard it, and at the end of the days, I mean, just some killer killer type uh, cymbal work and things like that. And what he'll do, you know, in the Wolf with with some of the almost cowbell esque moments, and Psychotic Reaction has some great cowbell. A lot of the yeah, well. ride the be- the ride of the or exactly. the bell of the ride symbol and stuff as well. Just awesome. So so we're gonna jump into the Wolf, and then uh, Psychotic Reaction, which is the song. Uh, that it's not Mark, a Count Five cover. It is not a Count Five cover. If you want to uh, see the Count Five cover, go uh, listen to the 1991 Tom Petty version. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah and uh, or if you want to hear the original from Count Five, uh, the Nuggets collection, which is awesome psychedelic uh, mm-hmm. garage rock stuff but psychotic reaction uh very much a sabbath kind of like it's often been called the best sabbath song that oyomi didn't write yeah uh, it was voted one of the heaviest songs of all time by guitar world which is pretty cool and uh really a heavy riff for 1990 you know and predicts kind of the black album and stuff like that and then uh we'll uh, hear sinner's fame and the misery shows and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about those two songs uh but do pay attention for some allison chains-esque moments on those two songs okay enjoy
Shows. Please take 
That was The Misery Shows, Act 2, Sinner's Fame, Psychotic Reaction, and The Wolf. And uh, those last two tunes, as I said, had some Alice in Chains-esque moments. Uh, Sinner's Fame, kind of a cool, like, that's the tune I think you and I both picked up on some Cinderella, kind of 80s hair metal yeah. pre-chorus kind of thing. Oh, yeah. But, like, the moment into it is, is it has, like, that epic, like, maybe, like, it, like it's, like, it's gonna move into something really important instead it goes into like a almost a monotone spoken like jerry Cantrell, lane staley like ah, ha, da, da, yeah. you know like yeah. really kind of you know predicts some of that kind of stuff um but you picked up on the the organ a little bit too which plays a cool role kind of in the background here yeah which is uh i guess jeff olson who was one of the founding drummers was founding right. drummer of the band yeah came back for this record for uh for some a little bit of keyboard Play playing, tickling the ivory, yeah. ivories, as they say. <laughs> but uh, great guitar work from the the duo that we mentioned before on that song, and then Misery Shows, I think, is a standout tune. You said you remember uh, this tune, obviously from Headbangers Ball, but yeah, didn't have I mean, much it's, of an impact. And it's know? amended to, I mean, it's a seven minute long song, and actually the video is about four and a half minutes. Yeah, so, so they, they cut, cut out that, like, the entire end piece. That's kind of makes the song a little bit more unique outside say. of just a Guns N' Roses B-side. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, for sure, if you don't hear, like, the the Axel-esque yeah. singing stuff, yeah. you know, on there. But the bass playing in this is great. Oh, the bass is fantastic in the song. I mean, I don't know. Would you say that that's, like, Geezer, Geezer Butler-esque? Or would it's you kind say? of a, yeah, like, a, like the walking bass kind of line that he, would, that he would typically do. And he's kind of playing... Not the same, you know, he's not playing a straight beat along with the drummer or playing the same similar thing with the guitar player's doing, but kind of going in between all that stuff. Yeah. Know, kind of knitting it all together, really. I mean, is that the kind of same approach that, like, a Cliff Burton kind of did in some stuff? Cliff, yeah. Actually, Cliff Burton, for all the accolades he gets, or accolades, not accolades, all, well, I guess he gets accolades, too. Um, I don't think he's really that great of a bass player. Really? I think he was a unique bass player, but I don't think he was really that... I mean, innovative or anything, really. Yeah. That, that's, you know, that's my opinion on him. But, yeah, he was more... Because, I mean, it seemed like a, an anomaly because he was playing, you know, with his fingers and doing all kinds of, like, weird distorted shit. Sure. In Thrash, which, you know, Steve Harris was doing the same yeah. type stuff, minus the, the distortion. But, um, yeah, I, mean, I guess they could be in similar schools, but I don't think he's quite as versed as... Um, as Holtzner? As Holtzner. Yeah, around Holtzner. But I think, you know, I think what's so cool about those two songs is the... The atmosphere, the sort of moody, mournful, gloomy, doomy kind of mm-hmm. thing that it's it's morose, but yeah, there's a lot of controversy. Very melodic, you know, yeah, at the yeah, because it's, it's kind of like a, a pretty song, a beautiful song, but then it's you know has this underlying just kind of like depressing tone to the whole thing. Yeah, and there's that great like drum breakdown where like the song kind of cuts out, and it's like it just all I can think of is Angry Chair from Alice in Chains, you know, <laughs> yeah. like where it's just like kind of kind of hitting that, and then uh, the midsection totally like where the solo kind of erupts. I don't even call it a solo, but like where the guitar kind, of, kind of like rises, bit. it goes. That's yeah. total Alice in Chains love, hate, love from facelift. Like, mm-hmm. Go out, check it out. See if I'm wrong. If I am, you know, hit me up Tough. on it. But, uh, yeah, between it's like sort of like healthy mix of Guns N' Roses and meets Alice in Chains, like mm-hmm. in 1990, like a street fight or something. You know? Yeah. But with some kind of epic qualities because, you know, the seven minute tune, you know. So those are, you know, I mean, you can't ask for a stronger, I'd say, five songs to sort of kick off a rock and roll doom record. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just like 
if you ended the record there, I think it'd still be kind of considered to be, you know, a masterpiece of sorts. But, but, but we need some palm muting. We need to have R.I.P. coming. There we do. We got some R.I.P. And this, this for you, one of the world's greatest cathedral fans here. You've got to, you got to be wetting your appetite. You know, I mean, it's it's funny how close it is to. I mean, to, you know, half a dozen cathedral kind of like chord progressions and stuff too. It's just like, wow. Yeah. That, that, yeah. Okay. Gaz, I think Gary Gaz Jennings was, was really <laughs> listening to this a lot. <laughs> I mean, especially the soul sacrifice, like ethereal mirror kind of era, yeah. you know, like we're, you know, like it's almost like a riff, like ride, mm-hmm. you know, which we, did they play that when we saw them? I'm almost positive. They did. I want to say they played ride, which yeah. is cool to see. Yeah. I think they played midnight, uh, midnight mountain. Oh, as well. they definitely did yeah. play midnight mountain. Yeah. There's, there's some of that too. But then, like, right when it's, like, in that Sabbath-y kind of, like, cliche, doomy kind of thing that it's they, doing. They play this R-E-P. triumphant riff. Yeah. Over the top of it. Just, you know, that... And then... Yeah. Which is really bizarre, and I can't really play... It's almost like a... Maybe it's just because I listened to a lot of Thin Lizzy today, but almost like a weird Thin Lizzy kind of progression, too. Yeah, it could be. Because they had a lot of stuff that was kind of, like, you know, sorrowful, but then would, like, throw the this triumphant thing. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I think, like, Emerald is kind of yeah. triumphant and sorrowful at the same time you know, yeah. from Thin Lizzy and stuff, you know? And then like all of a sudden RIP, like just like rips into this huge, like thrash breakdown, like near the end, mm-hmm. which it's, it's like the first kind of like throwback song, I think on the record to like some of their earlier sure. kind of what, you know, what people would assume is their style, but definitely menacing, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and that's something that's kind of cool about the, the sort of doomy vibe and atmosphere of the whole record is, is just the, I don't know. It, it all it all sort of fits together and works, even though each song kind of has its own kind of moments and stuff. But I think some of the throwback '80s metal kind of moments that I hear really come to fruition on like a song like "Black Shapes of Doom," which at first like I might think like the hair metal stuff, but then you forget that there was this other band that was existing in the '80s that was kind of standing next to all that, but doing their own version of it, which was Judas Priest. Yeah. You know, and like. Priest had the harmonies and the twin leads and Priest could write almost, you know, like with Screaming for Vengeance, like they were like near mainstream metal Mm -hmm. and like almost defined it in a way, but yet like still were like respected. They weren't like sellout, you know? Yeah. They Um, never sounded like they're trying to, you know, kind of placate to any type type of scene outside of what they were, except, well, I mean, Turbo was was interesting, but I mean, nobody sounded like Turbo either. That's true. And so God, I hope they play Turbo Lover tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna see we're gonna see some <laughs> see some priests tomorrow. And so then uh yeah, so like in Black Shapes of Doom, you hear some of that Judas Priest mixing with the aforementioned Midnight Mountain Sabbath mm-hmm. riffs, you know, yeah. and just uh I mean lots of you know, Witchfinder General kind of stuff as well and you know, which you know, go back a couple episodes and check that out. Yeah, yeah. So I mean I and, and it's it's hard to say, like, what, I mean, where, where do you think these guys were coming from, like, in terms of their influences outside of Black Sabbath? I mean, you know, what, what are, what are they listening to in 1989 when they sit down to write this record, you know? I mean, like, with a lot of bands that, you know, if, I mean, at that point, they'd been a band for, um, for 10 Price. years. Yeah, since 78, 79, yeah. Yeah, uh, so it's, at that point, I don't know like how much stuff you're actually still listening to outside of just what you always listen to, you know, Sabbath and Zeppelin and whatever else. But yeah. it's uh, I think a lot of it had to do with Ruben's kind of in- input and what he heard in their previous, you know, in their earlier stuff and what could be commercially kind of viable too and stuff and saying commercially like, viable, but also be you know artistically fulfilling as well. And I mean, just the fact that he's able to get this out of them 
uh, it speaks volumes about his talent. I mean, some of the most interesting like solo playing that doesn't ever kind of pop up on any of the other records either. It's just like no. just this record is like some some of these solos are just like wow, that's really, really those guys doing that. stuff. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, you know, I mean, we were just checking out some of the, you know, the the Solemn Nine stuff, and I mean, that sounds great as well. But it's it's not this either, you mm-hmm. know. Like this is all sped up. It's not as like slow and, and gloomy and doomy as the the first couple Trouble records were, mm-hmm. you know. And so I don't know, it, you know, it's it just it, it boggles the mind why something like this that couldn't find an audience unfortunately and then we're going to sort of jump into uh after we do r.i.p which we just talked about and then black shapes of doom we're going to go into uh heaven on my mind and end and uh heaven on my mind i i can't say a lot about this song it's kind of the it to me it's the furthest from i guess their doom roots that they go on this record and so it's it's not my it's not my go-to song. It's one I usually skip over. To yeah, the truth. I mean, I guess it's the most average song on the record, and it could have been cut, really. Yeah, you know, and and I think, it, I guess it's anthemic in some ways if you're into that, but it's it's not what I look for from Trouble. I mean, I think the Wolf is way more anthemic in, mm-hmm. in terms of the emotive nature of the chorus, but I mean, the record kind of does start to fizzle toward the end. Sure. Yeah. Like they kind of put their whole, you know, blew their load really quickly on this. Although. When we get to end, it has one more, one more two and a half minute moment. Yeah. I think of, of sort of glory. So, and we'll talk a little bit more about end uh, when we come back. So, enjoy R.I.P. Black Shapes of Doom, which I, I think I mentioned to you would make a great Electric Wizard title. Uh, and then Heaven in My Mind and E.N.D. Uh, also spelling end. What is that uh, acronym for? Uh, mm, Erupting non extreme noise destruction. There you go. <laughs> enjoy extreme noise destruction from Trouble.
Shapes of Doom and R.I.P. NFL, nice fucking life. Nice fucking life. Uh, did they have another? Uh, no, that was the only Anthrax acronym. Not, I feel A.I.R. They had A.I.R. Yeah. So, yeah, who knows? Hey, go back and listen to Anthrax show. There you, go. there you go. I think we played both. We played both, for sure. E.N.D., uh, something kind of cool about that song. We were kind of trying to brainstorm on what the hell that riff was. Because it's 
pretty heavy, some cool like double bass kind of stuff kicking, and you yeah. you notice the the double bass especially, and and the riff to some extent sounded uh, very much Death Angel board. Oh yeah, yeah, you know? which is kind of a classic tune. You know, I which wish, is kind of the speaking only. of Anthrax, I wish we would have been able to check out Death Angel and Anthrax and Testament. Testament, yeah, they played in Grand Rapids, which was like two and a half hours from us. And <sighs> but it's a it's a right wing conservative Christian community that's a large Mormon population is the home of Amway as well. Ah, yes, yes. Lots of Calvins. Yeah. Lots of Calvinist, yeah. uh, you know, Protestants. It's a healthy dose. If, if you like a healthy dose of Lutheran Protestants, then go I'm always a big fan. Hang out in Holland and uh, Grand Rapids. Sorry if you're a fan from that side of the state. We're not, uh, I, 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 no, no judgment. Um, used to have some good record stars, but, you yeah. know. I used to work, uh, I helped build the Target in uh, Wyoming, you should uh, you should go over there and tell the people that I when you go there and see if you get free go stuff. Shake some hands. <laughs> Can't speak to the manager, please. Uh, but the other the other riff you kind of get out of this is I, I sort of point out uh, Jewel Throne Throne. Sorry, <laughs> Celtic Frost. Celtic Frost. Uh, there's there's a little bit of that sort of going on. So, but um, yeah, and like I said, as you mentioned, I think there's some truth to the fact that the the album uh, kind of peters a little bit. In, in a way, I mean, I think the first six songs are just, like, absolutely, you know, like, killing. I mean, even seven, really, up to mm-hmm. Black Shapes of Doom. Yeah. And then you get to Heaven on My Mind, END, and then All is Forgiven. And this, you know, this is the part of the record I don't listen to as much, you know, to be fair. And, uh, you know, I apologize if you're a All is Forgiven fan uh, unapologetically or something, you know, just a diehard kind of guy. But um, All is Forgiven is actually a pretty cool song, too. I mean, it's got kind of, you mentioned uh, like a riff that reminded you of Metallica, some of their instrumental stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, it's just not, that song, I guess the whole thing, if they would have like, I guess taking a couple of those later on songs and threw them earlier on in the mix, it might have kind of broke up the the record a little bit more. Absolutely. I mean, I think maybe something like the Misery shows could have like worked a little bit more towards the end in mm-hmm. kind of giving more of an epic feel towards the end of the record or something, you know. But because I have a feeling that song um, was definitely, you know, that was like kind of handpicked as going to be the this is going to be the single on the record, and it's like kind of dead center in the record. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But, uh, but yeah, so All's Forgiven kind of closes things out. Um, you know, it's got a nice soulful midsection, very bluesy, very Sabbath-y. Um, you know, I mean, I think ultimately the thing you could say about this record is there's sort of a sad, mournful, yearning nature to it that, that works really well. You know, I mean, it, it, it makes it melancholic, yet still rock and roll, still yet doomy, yet there's some psychedelic elements to it, and... You know, yet the virtuoso sort of guitar soloing at times, you mm-hmm. know, um, great, really loose kind of 70s rock kind of drumming and some, as you said, kind of geezer-esque bass playing. Yeah. You know, and Wagner's vocals, I mean, we haven't really talked about them in a sense, but they are they have a unique quality for sure. Um, I mean, he actually, the, uh, I don't know what you call it, the Misery shows, It's he has a pretty acceptable you know, vocal delivery that would have totally, I don't, I really don't know why that song didn't get bigger yeah. than it did. Um, but then his a little bit more, you know, kind of throaty, harshy, croaky vocals. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's a very unique sounding, yeah. sounding uh, guy. And that was one of the ri- initial reasons why I didn't really like trouble when I was younger. Was it the vocals? The vocals were just like, not just like how King diamond took a long time for me sure, to like, get into his, ass. Yeah. So, you know, some of that there stuff. were like operatic stuff. Like for some reason, Maiden priest didn't really rub me that way, but um, these guys always, it was just kind of a bizarre mix to have that kind of vocal over 
you know, for all intents, all intents and purposes, a doom band. Sure. Yeah. 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 So, but, uh, yeah, let us know what you thought. Uh, if this is your first experience, I guess, with trouble, uh, trouble, trouble, you know, maybe you've heard some of the older trouble, but didn't really know much about this era of them. Cause this thing, I mean, it's tough to find. I mean, I guess nothing's really that hard to find on the internet, but if you're looking like going to a CD shop or a music mm-hmm. store, trying to find, a physical copy of this thing it's gonna be a little difficult sure and especially like i maybe some of our younger uh listeners you know this just might not we were be probably the, born in 1990 yeah, <laughs> might not be on the radar screen you know so uh yeah shoot us an email requiempodcast at gmail.com check us out on facebook uh on itunes uh leave us a star rating i think we're still perfect up to this point yeah. which is good uh so hopefully you you also <laughs> keep that perfection sort of running and then uh on the website requiempodcast.com uh you can check out some cool artwork from mark mm-hmm. you've got some stuff going on from hp lovecraft speaking i do of, i have uh, the uh, speaking of metallica uh instrumentals there yeah. we go uh, nice segue yeah we've got uh, i've got the dagon uh graphic novel that's available for pre-order right now i had a kickstarter campaign up there now but that has been fully funded and uh, now i'm waiting on getting the print copies and you can get one of your very own cool at yeah. uh, requiempodcast.com as well as become an executive producer of the show absolutely which we do appreciate especially around the holiday season as it's starting to approach yes so. that's usually when people uh, don't buy anything yeah <laughs> <spending> <laughs> <money>. <laughs> or listen to shows for that matter because yeah. they're all busy but we're going to be there to go to grandma's house with you for the holidays. Absolutely. And we've got some, uh, some cool things coming up, uh, down the road, probably around the, uh, after the, the new year kind of era, I think is when our episode number one fifty will probably drop is somewhere mm-hmm. in the, in the new year. But, um, yeah, so cool. Let us know if you got any show ideas, things like that. And let us know, obviously what you thought of the show tonight in trouble. So enjoy, uh, all is forgiven from us to you. And, uh, Requiem Mile Podcast. I'm Jason. And I'm Mark. <laughs>